Bill Ekstrom, how you doing? Good, Arch. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for coming on to the Principal Podcast. Um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Um, Bill, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself in a second here. But what I wanted to talk to you about particularly was, you know, everybody always talks about step out of your comfort zone, embrace discomfort. It's good for you. But no one really quantifies it as you do kind of in a scientific way. Um, And and that's really why I wanted to have a conversation with you about discomfort. So um, please, the floor is yours. Go ahead with um, an introduction. Well, oh boy, how do I do this? Um, I don't have to do this very often. Let me see here. Embracing discomfort already. I know it is, right? When someone says, introduce yourself. So um, I am the CEO. You know what? Screw that. I'm a father of three. I'm married to a beautiful, wonderful wife. We have two dogs, one of which is a therapy dog, which is a hobby and passion of mine to do therapy mm-hmm. dog training and work. I am fortunate enough to have um, be the CEO of three companies. And all those companies started out of discomfort as a result of getting fired. So I am passionate about growth and what creates it. And that's really what I am. You know, my growth passion, of course, goes into the businesses. So we help leaders in business, coaches in the world of sports, and teachers in classrooms understand the impact they have on the growth and performance of the people on their business teams, on their sports team, or in their classrooms. So there you go. That's awesome. And, um, you know, I'm glad that you highlighted kind of the the parallels that you see um, with people embracing discomforts and particularly mentors kind of pushing um, discomforts onto their apprentices, if you will, within, you know, business, um, if you're a teacher, professor, whatever, or uh, leaders in sports, I think that's a really interesting conversation. And, you know, hopefully we'll get into that at some point. But um, yeah, I wanted to uh, to kick this off. Um, for everybody who hasn't seen your TED Talk, you really talk about this concept of four growth rings, mm-hmm. which are what? Stagnation. I'll let you. Stagnation, kind of... chaos, order, and complexity. Got it. Got it. Right. And um, And essentially, the point of your TED Talk is to say that you want to be in the complexity zone um, when you're trying to grow, you want to be between complexity and order, right? Essentially, Very good. you want to find yeah. that you, you kind well, of want you, to find you, that you obviously Arj did a nice job of reading between the lines because in a 12 minute Ted talk, it's hard to communicate the things that you're mentioning now. So yes, yeah. the, there is, I think the most common question I receive from people, whether it's in a live audience or whether it's a, you know, a note on LinkedIn or, or somebody finds me on social media is, can you live a life in discomfort? And the answer is no, not a, not a healthy life. You, you cannot. And what you've picked up on are just that there is a balance. It is our time of order of comfort that we need as humans to allow us times in complex environments, which are the uncomfortable environments, which is where growth occurs. Um, so, I mean, I sit there and talk about that. Here I am sitting with visiting with you with a glass of wine in my hand. This is my, this is my mellow time. This is my predictable, my comfort. I don't, I'm not, I'm not looking at my six o'clock hour as my growth time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Everybody needs that time. Everybody needs that time to rest, recover, to think, reflect, etc. Um so I guess my question, my first question is how do you find the right balance between having enough complexity in your life but also having enough order, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm sure the balance might be different for everybody, but are there generally things that you try to you know, in your in your conversations with your clients, what how how do you kind of strike the right balance for them? Uh I'm, I'm not sure we do strike the right balance for them all the time, Arch. It's, it's, a, it's a very poignant question. And this is where there's probably some art alongside of the science. Um, 
I, I, th- I think the, the greatest justice we can do for our clients or for the listeners of this podcast is to first educate yourself on, on really what those growth rings are all about and, and understand to get to know yourself well enough to know when you need comfort, when you need to slow down, when you need to rest, when you need that, that predictability. But also be wise enough to know when you are becoming a little bit complacent, um, when you are not growing. Um, you can be very intentional about it. You can feel your way through it. When I say intentional, I mean you can you know put things on your calendar once a quarter. I mean I, I'm very intentional about my mindfulness exercises every morning are that that I believe allow me to be in touch with myself to know when I have hit levels where I need to be challenged more I need to begin investigating more things like that um, so I think the best thing we can do is tell people to to begin to know themselves to spend time in mindfulness practices every day or at least five days a week so what's an what's an indicator in your mindfulness practice to know when you're when you're pushing too hard, or when you're not pushing hard enough? Yeah, because those are two completely separate things. Yep. Um, one is, am I struggling to make my mindfulness practices to be there, and that is a very strong indicator that hey, okay. You need to back off, dude. You 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 have to slow down. Uh, I have physical indicators um, when I get an achy back or I, I, things where my brain is becoming overloaded and it begins to do things to my body, and I know that um, I'm not taking care of myself um, from a mental point of view more so than a physical point of view. Um, the other way, how I notice things, um, this is arguably a tougher question because usually I'm on the back off side of it as opposed Mm -hmm. to the speed up side of it. As I'm sure most people are, right? They they are. Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that. Um, I'm not sure that is the case because there's a difference between hard work and growth. I can push myself to work hard every day, but if I don't have outside influences, if I don't allow people to push me in different ways, and I was talking about this with a group this morning, um, that I know a lot of people that would say, well, hey, I I get the concept. I'm really good at pushing myself. Mm -hmm. I don't need someone to push me. Because I right. do it myself. Right. Why do I need a coach? And so my response is, well, right there, you just answered it. Because what you're saying is a coach, the way they push you, makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be pushed that way. You only want to be challenged as the way you challenge yourself. And that is an indicator. So I rely... Um, on myself, I rely on outside influences. I'm I'm fortunate enough to have a team of people at work that aren't afraid to say, "Hey, Bill, what the heck's going on, dude? You know, you need to open your mind up to this." My kids are an amazing resource that way too. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they they will they don't hesitate to look at me and say, "You sound like an old man," or "You sound like twenty years ago thinking." You haven't even you know. And that's probably one of my biggest fears is it's not a fear anymore, but when I hear people say, Hey, you know, I'm the same old guy I always was. Mm-hmm. I'm the same person. Yeah. Since college, I'm that same person. I'm that same. It's like, how sad is that? That's that it. You that's haven't it. evolved. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't that's changed. That's you a know, red flag. Yeah. Right. If an athletic yeah. coach says, Hey, I coach the same way today. I did 10 years ago. Well, shame on you. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't coach because I guarantee the people you're coaching have evolved. 
uh, in business, it's the same thing that applies. You know, if you, if you need coach teams in business the same way today you did 10 years ago, you're archaic because those people have evolved and you, you, you better change with them. So, so on the soapbox there, I apologize. So on the, on the topic of evolving, let's take a step back to um, what you said during kind of your intro, right? You said that you <clears throat> have started three companies around this whole discomfort, embracing discomfort concept, um, which were all as a result of you getting fired from that job. So let's, can we um, can we talk a little bit about what you were doing prior to founding those companies? You want to unpack what? that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> speaking speaking of evolving, um, I felt like I couldn't find a better segue. Yeah, that was a good segue, Arj. Uh, Pre entrepreneurship, I was um, I did a litany of various things. I mean, I could. I have a a wonderful a colorful background of successes and failures. And, you know, I get a kick out of, and here I'll, I, I, I sidetrack, but you're allowing me the luxury in the uh, room to do this, Arj. Um, when, when I ever introduced, maybe if I'm doing a, a talk or a keynote or a lecture or whatever it may be, and I always, and, and I noticed this one time when somebody was reading my bio to the audience and I'm thinking to myself, you know, all they hear in my background is the good stuff. Yeah. All, all, all they, well, let me rephrase that. All they hear are the times I've succeeded. Right. Because what our PR and marketing people don't put into print are the countless times I failed um, or been humiliated or just flat out haven't succeeded, you know? And I remember thinking to myself, that's not fair because they just hear, you know, I did a TED talk um, that went viral, a best-selling author, CEO of companies. Well, guess what? You know, as a kid, I was by today's standards, I'd be labeled behaviorally disordered. I spent more time in the principal's office than I did in my classroom. I was kicked out of school in the seventh grade with the recommendation I be expelled from the school district. Not because I was, you know, like a drug dealer or stealing things, but I was just mischievous. I was, I was, I was troubled I was apparently as a child for some reason. You know, I made it through high school because I had a couple of athletic coaches that cared enough about me to make sure I, I passed academically and, and was able to play. I flunked out of college my freshman year, went to work at a beef packing plant in the cooler, pushing lugging meat around all day long. I uh, went back to school, um, you know, went, couldn't even finish that at times because I needed money. So I had to leave to work. Mm-hmm. Um I got fired from a job. I worked my way up finally to executive vice president of a publicly traded company. I was in charge of, I was EVP of business development and marketing for a publicly traded company. Got fired from that job. Um, you know, the first time I submitted an application to do a TED talk, I was rejected by the TED committee in my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. Now, when I'm introduced, do you suppose any of those things make it to print? No. So what I've started to do is after people read my bio, I come out and tell those stories. And then I say, what do you think of me now? Does it change your perception of me? Because here's what's interesting. Without those setbacks, without those challenges, without those failures, those things that quite frankly make us who we are, they enhance who we are as people. Without those, you and I wouldn't be on the phone today or, 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 or on this podcast, Arch. We wouldn't. 100%. And it took me so long to become secure enough to become vulnerable and share those stories. The TED Talk that you're referencing, um, which, by the way, I have another one coming up later this month or in the month of May. Uh, I got invited back to the TED stage. But 
the, the, the first Ted talk I did the opening to that talk where I share the story about getting fired yep. was not my idea. I did not want to do that. I did not want to open the talk that way. Uh, our team at work talked me into that. And that's when I realized, you know, Brene Brown has something. <laughs> that yeah, vulnerability I mean, is, is impact. It's impactful. Yeah. And I, I can't say, I, I mean, I can't say I blame you because it's not the most, you know, flattering way to, to paint your, your story, right. To tell your story. The first thing that you share with people is, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm giving a Ted talk. I'm supposed to be the successful guy, but Hey, I got fired from this job. Right. Like it's not right. immediately the first thing you want to share, but I can appreciate that. Yeah. yeah right. and, but what was fascinating is what I realized is, is why vulnerability is important to your effectiveness as a coach or a leader too, because immediately after the talk, and there were 1600 people in the audience immediately after the talk, people started approaching me and saying, Oh my gosh, I had no idea. You, that happened to me, Bill. I, I mean, my, I, I lost my job. You lost your job too. I mean, I became like a poster child for people that had been fired and had done something with their life. Yeah. I think the first several talks I did after the Ted talk and interviews all had to do with being fired not mm-hmm. with the growth rings. <laughs> you know, yeah. people wanted to know how you got fired. Why'd you get fired? And, you know, and how'd you come out of that? They didn't even want to know about the growth rings. Right. Because you clearly, I mean, you were, you were kind of like a live case study, right? Like you get fired and then you, you, you know, you mope around for a few days or a few months, whatever. And, right. and then you figure out what you're going to do next and you respond to it. Right. So exactly. I, I'm sure a lot of people, um, could could use your your expertise in like getting through a situation like that where where they get fired completely unexpectedly yeah. and then have to figure out a way to bounce back. So, how did you bounce back? Oh wow! Um, I know you touched on in the TED talk. You, you know, you went home and curled up into a ball like every, <laughs> like you know ninety nine point nine percent of people would. But I did. Literally, uh, you bounce back. I you know I I think one of one of the moments in my life I'm most proud of um, was the morning after mm-hmm. um, I got up, you know, uh, I mean, I, I quite literally took, took, you know, came home. My wife said something like, wow, you're home early. And I was, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I was fired from my job. She goes, no, really. Why are you home early? I said, I was fired from my job. And she couldn't comprehend that. Um, nor could I went upstairs, laid down, uh, curled up in the fetal position. Um, you know, kids came home from school from, you know, their stuff and came time for dinner. I just, she said, well, what are you going to do? I just, I'm going to go down and tell, tell the kids. So I went down and told the kids, I think they were all shocked. Um, they could tell I was shocked. And, um, that evening, um, cause I, I remember, I can't remember one of them mentioned, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll figure that out tomorrow. Um, and I'll never forget, and I'm, tears come to my eyes when I tell the story. Um, oh, that was it. I, I, I had said at dinner, one of them said, what are you going to do? I said, well, first thing I need to do is go buy a computer because the only computer I had in my laptop was the company computer. So yeah. I left that behind. And, um, when I went to bed that night, um, on my pillow, was my oldest daughter's computer, her laptop. She put it on my pillow with a note that said, you don't need to go buy a computer. You can use mine. So the next morning, um, I woke up at the time I would usually wake up to go to work. So I was up about five 30 in the morning uh-huh. and, uh, I went down to my office at, at home there and I said, I'm here. My kids are alive. My kids are healthy. My wife loves me. I'm here. So what are you going to do now? And I began calling people. I began thinking. And that's when my, that's what I was most proud of is getting up that morning and saying, okay, can't give up. Got to go do something. So. That's beautiful. I mean, it seemed, it sounds like you, um, 
you obviously were, it was, it was a complete shock to you, but you came out swinging, so to speak, right? Like you woke up that morning and you realized what you had to be grateful for. And you were like, all right, let's, let's see, let's see what we can make happen. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that went into that. You know, it's not, uh, I, I tell you, that wasn't, that wasn't all me in that moment. It was having parents and family members who taught me that, um, who taught me the value of work, who taught me that you can't give up. You got to keep swinging. My mother always used to say, why not you as a kid when I was in trouble all the time, you know, mom always used to say, Hey, this isn't you. I know that you'll be okay. Um, and then she'd say, why not you? When I would, we would talk about things. She, she believed I could do anything, anything. And so I had to prove her right that next morning. I wanted to ask you like some of the emotions that you felt when, when you, when you received the news, right? I'm sure you were just shocked. Obviously you're upset, but something that, something that I hear pretty often from, you know, people who talk about emotions and psychology is that anger is kind of a useless emotion, right? Like you shouldn't, the more time you spent angry about something, the more you're kind of just wasting your time and you're not being proactive about figuring out your next steps. Do you agree? Like, do you, do you think that anger is a useless emotion? Were you angry when you received that news? Um, wow. Arge, let me think here. I can tell you this. I, you know, it, there, there are different phases you go through. First, I was shocked. I, I, I literally, I mean, I was so blindsided. There was nothing. We had just finished up a record year. There's nothing that indicated, you know, at, at that time, looking back, of course, you can see some things that you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, CEO of the company, you know, wanted you to do this. You didn't do this. You went another way, you know, so you see things right retrospectively, but in the moment, um, there was shock. Then it turned to humiliation. Um, that was, I think the most pronounced, uh, emotion that I felt. So quoting the growth rings, I was in a state of chaos and I was frozen, you know, Mm -hmm. chaos usually creates a fight, flight or freeze. Um, and I immediately just froze. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to do anything. Um, and then, yeah, I got, I got angry. I got pissed off. Um, and I don't personally, (laughs) a lot of people, they may hear this and think I'm warped. Um, Anger is okay at times. It, it, it's okay. It, it, it doesn't bother me to be angry at times. It doesn't bother me to be angry at people at times. If, if I'm wronged, if I feel like I'm wronged, um, it's okay to be angry. I don't, you know, um, to hang on to it for too long obviously isn't healthy, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I think sometimes we think we need to be perfect on on our emotions. You know, you always forgive. Well, you know what? Um, I can go back and look at the series of events, how it was handled, how they handled me after the fact. And I don't forgive them because they took money from me. They, you know, they they did some things that I felt were very unethical. Mm-hmm. Do I, um, do I acknowledge and recognize the positive things that came out of that? Absolutely. Like this phone, like this, this podcast, this, my businesses, uh, everything that resulted from being fired, uh, that I turned the negative into a positive. So all those things, you know, I certainly acknowledge that, but do <clears throat> I respect the people for how they did it? Not at all. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily be going up to those people and saying thank you for whatever, right? Because yeah, you know, I don't know. yeah. no, no, huh? <laughs> no. And I and but 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 again, I I offer myself some grace on the fact that I, that I was angry. I'm not angry anymore, but I don't I don't feel a need to go back and 
you know, feel like I have to forgive somebody for, for something they did either. But no, I, no, I'm, I accept that I'm okay every now and then to be angry. It's like Mm -hmm. accepting the fact that we're going to make mistakes in our worlds. Yeah. So you, it's more of a, it's more of an accept and forget rather than a forgiven, you know, say thank you or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In your book, you talk about how order is actually the most dangerous state. Mm -hmm. Why is that the case? I would have imagined based on, you know, just, just hearing the four growth rings that you describe, I would imagine that chaos is probably the most dangerous state or even stagnation, but why is order actually the most dangerous state? Um, That's a really powerful question. Addressing the other two, stagnation and chaos, um, mm-hmm. those aren't places we we want to be. So we we typically people avoid chaotic environments or stagnated environments, but they seek ordered environments. Mm-hmm. They seek comfort. They seek it because right ordered environments. You know, as as you know, are. Uh, what makes them comfortable is the fact that they're predictable. I'm, I'm doing something or I'm in an environment where I know what's going to happen. It's predictable. And that's what creates comfort. That's what's so amazingly dangerous. It, 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 it's dangerous in a religious faith sense. It's dangerous in a political sense. I don't care what side of the aisle people are on. If you, if I get comfortable if I think things a certain way, the neural pathways in our brains get deeper and wider, and it's hard to think about things differently. I remember reading about studying the the con the, 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 this idea, the concepts of how um, meditation can impact you, mindfulness exercises can impact you, how it can, how our minds can create pain, real pain, but when there's really nothing perhaps wrong with you. And I remember reading on this, and keep in mind, I'm a big believer in science and research. Mm -hmm. And clearly, yeah, (laughs) thank you. Um, But I remember reading this and it, I couldn't make sense of it. And I remember saying to myself, Bill, I know you're not stupid. I know you're, you know, why doesn't it make sense to you? And then it hit me. It's like, oh my gosh, I've been programmed to think a certain way for so long. Another way of thinking about something is introduced to me and I can't, I, I, I can't get out of my neural pathways to think about it differently. And I used the example earlier, but it applies to religion, it applies, it applies to politics. And that's what's so dangerous about it because things do evolve. Things do change. And if we don't allow ourselves the luxury of learning, mm-hmm. we're going to miss. We're, 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 we're not going to, to understand that everything around us has changed, but we haven't. Mm-hmm. So order, while needed and, and, and present in high-performing teams, it's a, it's a very wonderful and dangerous ally that we have. Mm -hmm. That was very well said. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned that point because, you know, based on what you said, it's like the longer you spend in those comfortable um, states of order where you think a certain way, the more effort it's going to take to 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 change your way of thinking right because you're you're going to be so sunk in and your mind is going to be so locked into that way of thinking that it'll just be impossible for you to have an open mind and think about things a different way right it would take it a is. drastic amount of i mean claudette colvin um i hope that's her name <laughs> yes that's a perfect example right like mm-hmm. I, I don't even need to explain that i mean it's just obviously people were were so used to thinking a certain way and then Right, Something drastic had to happen for there to actually be a change in that order. Yeah the the amount it, it it seems as though the degree of disruption is equal to the degree of change. 
Um, and Claudette Colvin was a perfect example of that. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, she, did you, I don't know. I read in just in the last several months that her record was cleaned finally at the, I, she's, I not, she's like 90 some years old and it was not until just this year or, or this last six months that they, um, I think dropped her cleaned a record, dropped all the charges. I don't know what the legal term for it is, but yeah. Wow. For, I mean, for refusing to give up her seat on the bus. Yeah, finally. Took long enough. Yeah, 70 years, right? <laughs> yeah. It's absurd. I mean, that's that clearly demonstrates that point really well. Um, on that concept of order, you mentioned that you have three kids. You're a father. You've got a great family. You're like, I think you, as a parent, I would imagine that your prerogative is to, to introduce order and comfort into your children's lives. But how do you strike the right balance, I guess, in pushing your kids and, and putting them in a state of complexity, but also maintaining order and maintaining comfort in their in their daily lives? Like, I guess it's kind of going back to that point of balance, but I guess uh, I would just love to hear your perspective on that on parenting, how this stuff applies to parenting. It's everything in parenting. And what's really interesting mm -hmm. is forever, I wasn't that guy. I was a fix-it dad. Um, I made, I worked hard to make sure my kids didn't, you know, I removed obstacles so they could be on their way. And it wasn't, until the growth rings, it wasn't until our research wasn't until I've had all these epiphanies and discoveries that I realized that my behaviors, that my job, whether as a, as a parent, my, my job as a coach, my job as a leader in, in, in work and business and life mm -hmm. is not to remove obstacles for people. It is to help them understand how, how to remove them themselves. And I spent, half of my kids' lives removing obstacles so they could just be free and go. Then I spent the other half of my kids' lives saying, you want it? Fix it. You want to do it? Go do it. I'm not going to do it for you. You know, you get yourself in a problem, get out of the problem. I, I'm sure there was a point in life where my kids went to my wife and said, what the heck happened to dad? I mean, I, you know, I remember um, my one of my daughters got into a, a bad apartment lease after she graduated from college in New York City. Um, and going into the lease, you know, I said, are, are you sure this is a wise thing? Um and she said, yeah, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I said, great. And there are some various circumstances that came up and she needed to break her lease. And my wife said, hey, you got to help her with this. And I remember saying, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That, that's, that's her deal. She That was her choice, you know? Yeah. I used the example of my youngest daughter playing tennis in Florida, you know? Um she broke down tears on the tennis court, but she doesn't ever cry. You know, she's so tough. Mm -hmm. And the old me would have flown from Nebraska to Florida trying to figure out what's wrong. The new me is like, yeah, let her cry. Hell yeah. She'll be, you know, let her go. Um, um, so I, I think one of the greatest, you know, for example, the, the student, the student, the college admission scandal. Remember that Arch? Mm-hmm. That was one of the most appalling things and, and horrific examples of horrible parenting. And I don't care who's listening to this, but it just is that, are you kidding me? You're going to cheat and lie your way, your kids into school. That's just, that, that's a horrible helicopter. You know, those kids learn nothing. If they don't get into Stanford, screw it. They don't get into Stanford. You know, let them go. I don't care where they go. But if they don't get in, they don't get in. You don't buy their way. And that's ridiculous. Right. Earn so way. We, we Parents are afraid today to let their kids be in pain, mm -hmm. both physically or mentally. They are. 
And we see it especially so graphic in the world of athletics. You know, the parental involvement that that goes on with coaches and athletic directors is just, it, it, it's shocking to me. And we have to learn to back off and let our kids fall on their face. We have to let them fail and mm-hmm. then teach them that it's okay to get back up, to fight for it. Yeah. So. I yeah. Can, I mean, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I said I could just go on and on on that topic. So. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine that reframing your thinking in that way, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to do that in a business setting, right? Or even if you're like, if, even if you're a professor and you're kind of like mentoring a student or something, it's one thing to do it in the professional setting, but it's a completely different ballgame to do it in your own home, right? Mm-hmm. I would imagine that takes a lot of reframing. Yes. If you're, are you referring to the reframing of not, of, of, of letting them Right, of letting, of letting them fail, of letting them yeah. have to it, figure it out. It does. Um, yeah. And my kids have heard more than once, hey, I love you, but I'm going to let you suffer a little bit on this. Mm-hmm. You know, it has nothing to do with love and it has everything. <laughs> well, let me rephrase it. It has everything to do with love and nothing to do with me rescuing you. Mm-hmm. So I love you enough to where I'll let you be miserable for a little bit and let you figure out your way out of this. I love it. Um, to this point, we've, we've spoken kind of about um, complexity being forced upon you either by somebody or by a specific circumstance, but we haven't talked about how you can introduce complexity into your own life. How can somebody? How can the average person start to introduce complexity into their own life? Maybe, maybe a younger person who doesn't necessarily, who isn't necessarily aware of this concept and why it would be beneficial to them. Why should why should people embrace complexity in their own lives? Well, embracing complexity really is is to embrace the unknown. And let me let me give you an example. Um, I counsel and mentor a lot of young people. And I love it. I always have. And one of the things that seems to be very prevalent, so for example, young recent graduates of uh, college or university that I hear all the time, I just don't know what I want to do. Or a high school student. Oh, man. I just don't know what I want to major in, right? Mm -hmm. And my response is always the same. Go do something, even if it's wrong. I didn't know at the age of 21, you thought I knew that, hey, I wanted to own companies. No, I didn't know that. You go in and you do something. And if it fails, I said, if you don't like it, then you step away, you go get another job and you say, check the box. I know I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. You've grown, you've learned something to do. Nothing is no growth. I don't know what I want to major in in college. Well, then you have two things. Don't go or go and major in something. Then you can change it, but don't sit here and do nothing. Go work, go travel, go do something, but trigger the unknown. It's it, We get so hung up with, be, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be successful. I don't know if I'll like it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're right. You don't. Who cares? Go screw it up. And, and so I think people need to, when they hear themselves say, well, I just don't know. Just pause, capture that moment. Hear the words you just said and say, outside of you, who cares? is I don't know a good thing, uh-huh. not a bad thing. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that. And I may or may not be speaking from personal experience here, but I feel like the longer you tell yourself, oh, I don't know if this is going to work or, or if that is going to, you just start to talk yourself out of it, right? Like you might have a great idea to, to go do something, um, 
and then you let it sit for a couple of days and then you figure out reasons why you shouldn't go do that thing instead of just doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, I'm really glad that you, that you brought that up because I see that with my friends, coworkers, whoever, I see that with people in my life all the time, uh, including myself. Um, and that's, it's, it's very relevant. It's very, oh, relevant. yeah, it is. And, and, and keep in mind, well, I sound like I have all the answers to these things. I don't live that perfect life that way either. Mm-hmm. And I said, I told my kids are brutal. I mean, they will just call me out on stuff that uh, and my, my kids are bright. And so when they call me out, I, I really have to pause and listen and say to myself, do they have a point here? And then usually it's dang, they do. Oh, I hate it when they're right, you know, but because I get really uncomfortable. So, yeah, we, we, we have to watch and listen around us. Um, create, go, go find a coach. I think more young people should have a coach. Go find somebody that can help you with your finances, with your, with your career path, with all those things. They're out there. But challenge yourself in a way to where you say, I don't know. And then sit back and go, Oh, I don't know. That means that could be a growth experience. Mm -hmm. How does somebody find a coach? How does a young person go out there and, and find the right person for them to, um, to push them into, into these circumstances? You know, I, um, I don't have a perfect answer for that. Yep. Um, sometimes it's, you know, I, I think you could find mentors. I think mm-hmm. there's enough people out there that have a, um, what I'll call developmental bias that want to help people grow. You know, there's, we mentor a young man who, um, who's from Rwanda, who's a student at the university of Nebraska, mm-hmm. uh, who in a weird way came into our lives. I mentor a young woman from India who is a a professional um, living in Reno, Nevada, working at a a corporation who flat out just got on LinkedIn and said, will you mentor me? You know, we had some dialogue on some posts and, and, and she reaches out she, and after one conversation, she said, will you mentor me? <laughs> um, so shoot your shot. Or, or, yeah, she just threw it out there, you know? Um, and these aren't like paid things I do. These are just, you know, I, I just think there's enough people out there. And I work with so many. When, when I look at like the people in our office, I know if young people approach them and said, hey, would you just help me every now and then? Would you spend an hour on the phone with me once a month? Would you? I think I think more people would do that than we think than we believe would. I think they're there. We have to, but we have to be courageous enough to ask. Yeah, I'm. I'm that's gonna, hard for an introvert, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's exactly what I was getting at. I was going to say I, I'm going to disagree with you on that point because I think. Um, I think a lot of people talk themselves out of shooting their shot with somebody and just saying, Hey, I would really love your perspective on X, Y, or Z. Do you have time to talk about something for half an hour every, you know, couple of weeks or something? I think a lot of people talk themselves out of that because A, they're not sure of what to even ask, or B, they don't want to come off as like a burden to that person because I'm sure, you know, if they're a successful person, they must be pretty busy. Um, yeah, that's that that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are and then I, you know, intentionally, I I know there are um, young coaches, people that are in their early thirties that really want to give back. That you know, hey, for one hundred fifty bucks a month, I will spend time with you. You know, um, that are professional that way too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, um, but it is hard, and and I don't. I mean, half the people with whom I work or hang out with our introverts statistically 50, 50 roughly. Right. <laughs> so sometimes it favors the extroverts, which I hate, yeah. but I don't know. 
again, introverts, introverts can't become extroverts and I would never want them to. The beauty Mm -hmm. is is, is part of their introversion. Right. But it doesn't mean you can't ask the question. Yeah. And I think that's changing with like, um, you know, people connecting through online communities and stuff. I think that's, I think that is changing for the better for people who are introverted. Yeah, I'm proud of that, but yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Um, on that point of being a mentor and, and serving as that kind of, um, figure for somebody to look up to, is it possible for a mentor or somebody that pushes you out of your comfort zone into complexity? Is it possible for that person to also be your friend? Sure. Sure. Um, in the book, I wrote about Mitch in the book, um, Mm -hmm. who was my biggest discomfort creator as my boss. That's, that's where this question came from. And, um, I mean, my goodness, Mitch is in town. Actually, Mitch's real name is Bill. Um, and our publisher, said, um, you can't use that name because people are going to get confused. So Mitch, whose real name is Bill, um, again, I had to change his name so people wouldn't get confused in the book. Um, I remember when I was writing about him, I sent it back and, and the publisher is, is returning these things going, Bill, people are, you know, you, you can't talk about yourself this way. It's like, I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about my boss. Okay. I get it. I'm going to change his name. So anyway, um, yeah, we, we can, we can still be close. I respect him more because of what he did. I love him more because of what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were with him today, as often as, as I was back then, would he still annoy me at times? Heck yes. But yeah, I love that guy. I mean, I'm, I, I, Again, I'm where I'm at today because of that guy. So um, I think, maybe, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, and and maybe you even allowed him to to put you in those uncomfortable positions because he was your friend, right? If he was more of like a, a stranger or somebody who was just like, you know, this person's only in my life because they're my boss, you kind of, you know, maybe maybe brush off some of the challenges he would put in front of you. You know, it's a, it's a good question. So, but let's look at it this way. So, how are you defining a friend? Um, somebody that you can banter with in an unprofessional setting, just shoot shoot the shit with. Okay. Yeah. Clearly, he was that. Yeah. Clearly, he was that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, under that definition, and here's the beauty of great coaching, great leadership. Because we had that relationship, because given that definition, we were friends, he knew me better than most. He knew how to push me. He knew my breaking points. He knew what made me uncomfortable. He knew when I needed to be comfortable. And that's why he was so good at what he did. Um, if that's how we're viewing friendship, then everybody to the degree they can needs to try and be a friend. If you're in a leadership role, if you're in a coaching role, because without that, I won't be as effective in coaching you. Because you'll know which levers to pull and how much to pull and when to, when to ease up. Exactly. Well said. I like it. Um, last question for you, or hopefully the last question for you. I don't. I don't want to keep you here all night, but um, I'm this just, is fun. I'm really, yeah, I'm just. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, it's. It's obviously something that I like to talk about, and you are the perfect person to talk about it. So, I. Uh, I appreciate you coming well, on again. Thank um, you. What is something that leaders in the business world can learn from? leaders in the, in the sports world? (laughs) I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. Um, I've, I've been, I've worked with administrators and and coaches where they said they want to know what business leaders are doing. I've worked 
with business leaders who want to know what coaches are doing, but what can they learn from them? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. What should they try to um, emulate in their in their coaching styles, in their leadership styles, whatever you want to call it? Coaches in athletics have a seem to have a greater grasp of the fact that they own everything that spits out the end result. Let me give you an example. If I am a volleyball coach, a women's volleyball coach, I, and, and I measured or quantified by, a, there's really just a few metrics, right? One metric would be wins and losses. Another metric might be the experience that I'm providing for my student athletes. But regardless of which is very measurable, right? I then, uh, coaches, really successful coaches that I've seen, that I've studied, that we've researched, they understand they are accountable for identifying talent, for acquiring talent. They own the development of that talent. Now, not that they do it all themselves, but they have their fingers, th th there's no, their, their fingers in every one of these buckets. Now, they may have assistant coaches that, that meet these areas, but they, they're on it. Strategizing, um, motivation, they realize that they own it all that spits out that end result. And I think coaches, leaders, coaches in business, we like to use the term coach, um, have, to, have, to, have to do that themselves too. They have to own the identification and acquisition of talent for the people on their team. They have to own their development. They have to own their own development. They have to own the strategy, the motivation, what to manage, when to manage it, as opposed to lead. They, they own all those things. And that's what I think leaders in business should take away from this. And also, also what I believe businesses need to be cognizant of. If you put someone in business in charge of a team, but then tell that person, but we get to determine who's on your team. Well, then you're really not in control. Mm -hmm. You don't own the outcome because what they're saying is you don't control who's on that team. In college, you know, I own that. High school, I may not, right? I just, I, I, I play with the cards I'm dealt. So then I better have other metrics. Then you can't just put it on wins and losses in which, you know, I think winning can corrupt anyway, so. Anyway, I could go on and on and on. Yeah, but it sounds like it sounds like the short of it is um, you want to give people you want to give the people that you're leading skin in the game, obviously, but you also want to be accountable on the other side, whether whether they fail or succeed, you you hold yourself accountable. Right. You better look in the mirror. Yeah. Um, you know, we quick story on that. <laughs> Here we go again. Um I was visiting with a basketball boys basketball coach, uh, high school level. Yep. And one of his senior starters in a tight game later in the season, fourth quarter, the the ref calls a foul on him. And as the player is walking by the referee after the foul's been called on him, he turns to the ref and he tells him to f off but he uses as the full word. Oh boy. The ref immediately kicks him out of the game. Mm -hmm. The coach does not know what's going on. He didn't hear the players say that. And as the players walking off the court, the coach goes up to the referee and says, "Why'd you, what's going on? Why'd you kick him out? And the ref told, tells him that he told me to F off. The coach said, that was my lowest coaching point I've ever had in my career. That moment. He said, but here's what I did. This is where business people can take their lesson. He said, I didn't sit there on the bench or the spend that entire evening thinking about what I'm going to do to punish this kid. He said, I went home and I looked in the mirror 
And I said, what am I doing or not doing at practice or culturally that would allow this kid to think it's okay to behave like that? That's the difference. That that coach owned that moment. He didn't Mm -hmm. blame the kid. Yeah. He owned that moment. So what am I doing or what am I not doing? In business, we just fire that person. Boom, they're gone. 100%. Right? 100%. Yeah. Instead and that, of, that's the lesson. Yeah. That's powerful. Because like you said, in business, you fire that person or you put them on a performance plan and you say, hey, don't do that again, blah, blah, blah. But you'll never ask where that reaction or that response is coming from. Right. What did I do? What, a, what, did I do what to, to How much it? of that behavior do I own? And, yeah. and sometimes... You don't always own it, but you better go ask yourself if you do. Mm-hmm. And in this mm-hmm. case, coach did. Yeah. Because he made changes in the way he coached and that, I mean, everything in, in, in his players, everything changed from that point on. Yeah. From that, because of that moment. Yep. And I think that in the business world, people are more often than not tend to just point the finger and um, and move on. As opposed to, like you said, maybe you're not the reason for it. Maybe you're not the root cause, but still look internally and evaluate things before you point the finger elsewhere. Exactly. Right. All growth begins as a coach. If I, whether I'm a coach in business or athletics or in a classroom, if I want more performance, if I want more growth from the people on my team, it all begins by looking in the mirror. Amazing. If if anybody wasn't already convinced that discomfort and growth are things that are clearly correlated with each other, um, I think this conversation will will help them bridge that gap. <laughs> um, thanks a lot, Bill. I wanted to give you a chance uh, to just hand off to you know a where people can find you and b um, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about your upcoming TED talk. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm not even sure what it's about, but I'm already looking forward to it. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I can be found on our, our company's website is Excel Institute, E-C-S-E-L-L Institute.com. Same Excel Um The uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, all the usual places, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my first TED talk was titled "Why Comfort Will Ruin Your Life," and that is still out there. Still, God, it's just weird. Still, about a thousand people a day from across the world watch that crazy thing. Oh yeah. Um, our book is titled "The Coaching Effect," and it's at Barnes and Noble, it's Amazon, sort of all the usual places. And my new my my upcoming TED talk, it, it's fun and really change, changing gears. I am. Uh, talking about winnings, coaches' impact on winning and the student-athlete experience. Um, Pretty passionate about how athletic coaches impact student-athletes anywhere from middle school up through college. And, you know, and, and, and I talk about how if you don't learn how to do other things. If, if you don't keep winning in the right perspective, you will win less. Hmm. That's a powerful um, kind of dichotomy between those two, those two things. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a quick snippet yeah. from it. it. It's the, one of the examples I'm going to use in the talk is about a volleyball coach who, whose discovery, whose epiphany was, that she wasn't making the connection. She wasn't creating the psychological safety with her players that she thought she was. And the next year of coaching, she spent less time with her athletes, with her student athletes in the gym, working on skills and drills, way more hours. I, I, she probably went from zero to 30, 40, 50 hours in a season of working on relationships team dynamics, mindset, 
So she spent less time in the gym on skills and drills, more time away from the gym, working on those other dynamics, set a school record for wins. Wow. So in other words, I'm spending, I moved my focus away from winning and guess what happens? I won more than we've ever won. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, they clearly, the players did less skill work and less training and less time in the gym or et cetera, et cetera. Um, and spent more time on mindset training and relationship development. And it, it translated pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's so fascinating. Those, those, are, those are the things we're going to talk about in the, in the upcoming Ted talk. It's That's May 21st in Reno, Nevada. If anybody's around the Reno area, go. It's a, it's an amazing event. I, this, this TED committee in Reno is one of the best in the country, in the world, quite frankly. Awesome. May 21st, Reno, Nevada. Find a way to be there. Yeah. Talk will be released probably sometime in early June. Awesome. Can't wait. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks a Thank lot, you. Bill. This was awesome interview. I really enjoyed it. Well, Arj, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to join you and I um, uh, hope to shake your hand sometime. Hopefully in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> I would enjoy that.